Did you know that there's over 28,000 psychiatrists practicing in the U.S. today? And these numbers are dwindling. By 2025, the demand will outweigh the need here in the U.S. Hey guys, I'm excited about today's show. I have a special guest by the name of Dr. Steven Seeger. We're going to be talking about his book, Behind the Gates of Camorra, which is his internship experience working with the criminally insane. We're going to be excited, and he's also going to be giving us tips on what we can do during this time of pandemic. So let's get to it. You're listening to the Purpose Driven Person Podcast. This podcast is made for leaders unwilling to give up their desires to be purpose driven. Guys, I made this show for a compass for you to have more purpose in leadership through four concepts, creation, communication, collaboration, and connection in both business and in life. My name is Matthew Leland Cox. I'm the founder of Never Give Up Youth Healing Center, Never Give Up Wellness Center, and Never Give Up Foundation. You can find me at MatthewLelandCox.com. Are you ready? Well, let's do this. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Seeger, and I'm so excited to have you. We've been friends for a long time. I've known you for years. Um, been how many years has it been? It's so geez. We've been friends for I'm going to say 15 or 20, but has I knew it? you when you were a young man. Yeah, I was just starting out. I was just uh, yep. at Dixie College, I think. And you were indeed. And, and I was uh, a security so guard. People know we won a triathlon together. You, and I, I. I remember that. Ran a triathlon in Las Vegas on Lake Mead. Thir- under the 35 uh, under- division. It was under 27. 20, was it? I think you were about 28, 27 wow. or 28 at the 28. time. 28, yeah, because wow. I, I was just, uh, I think I met you as a security guard at uh, the hospital That's there. That's exactly right. Through one of our mutual friends, Jake. You got it. And, and uh, we all three went down and ran. And you and I, for some <laughs> weird reason, ended up in the same division. You ran, t- the, the swim was canceled. So you ran twice and I biked. Yeah, I was just starting out. I remember that. That that was how I lost a lot of weight doing those triathlons with you guys. Yep. And we won our division, which is unusual because you were 27 and I was 57. Yeah. So and we are, smoked it, you and I. Now you're not doing triathlons anymore, right? Uh, no, I got into marathons. Oh, how many? And I ran, uh, Jake and I ran a couple and my son and I ran a couple. Then I played badminton. Now I'm doing uh, hill climbing on the bike. Oh, okay. Hill climbing. That's Okay, that's got to be intense. It is. It's like Tour de France climbing, that kind of climbing where you start okay. at the bottom and go all the way to yeah. the top. I need to get into that. I got to get back. It's, re- to it's really fun. Well, it, this is crazy. It's been that many years. You've wrote tons of books since then. You're, you're up to how many books now? I've, I've finished six and I'm working on seven. Yeah, so six uh, from novels to uh, what other types of books? I mean, you- it, it, what I found is that... Uh, People pay me if I write a year in my life as a doctor. I started off a little bit as an internist, and then I ended up being an emergency room doctor. And I wrote a book about a case of a kid who drowned, and then a kind of a year in my life. And people back east in New York bought it immediately. And I did two or three of those. And every time I changed jobs, I'd just write a book called A Year in My Life, and Simon & Schuster buys it. And that's it. And and. That, was that your first book? And my first book was about an ER doctor. Then I, I became a psychiatrist. Well, I actually had three books about being an ER doctor. Then I became a psychiatrist and I wrote a book called Psych Ward, which was actually my bestseller about my internship as a psychiatrist at, at uh, Martin Luther King in Los Angeles. 
And then I wrote a novel, and then I wrote a book when I became, uh, worked at Napa State Hospital. I wrote a book called Behind the Gates of Gamora, which was about four years ago, about my year at Napa State. So every time I do that, I seem to sell it. So Now, it, with all these books, I want to jump real quick back to, so the listeners can understand a little bit is, what is the difference between a physician's and a psychiatric doctor? Because there's if you've never dealt with it, because there are some people don't don't even know what a. Oh psychiatrist no, I, I deal with this question all the time. Yeah. Uh, all psychiatrists are physicians. Yep. In other words, psychiatrists go to medical school, and when you graduate from medical school, you choose a specialty. I chose internal medicine initially. You can choose emergency medicine. You can choose cardiology. You can choose a pediatrician. You can become a neurosurgeon. You can become a psychiatrist. So all the doctors you know, we all went to the same. After college, we all went through medical school, and then we went through four more years of training. It is a medical specialty as opposed to psychology, which is uh, going to get a PhD from a university, like a PhD in English, something like that. Okay. So the diff- and, and a lot of times when you get asked that question, what is a day in the life of a psychiatrist every day? Well, what, that's really interesting because uh, what I tell people is psychiatry has kind of evolved into a routine medical specialty. My life when I was an internist at the beginning and when I was an ER physician is exactly the same now. I do medications, I do scans, I do labs, I do blood levels, I read x-rays, I get, I do everything your regular doctor does because psychiatric illness, at least the ones I deal with, are all basically brain diseases and that's what we're looking for and we're trying to fix them. And so I deal with like the seriously mentally ill, major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, but that kind of stuff. I, I deal, I specialize in the seriously mentally ill. Now you, but also you started out in the ER. That was where you started. Yeah, I was an ER physician for 10 years. Yeah. And it was relative, we started the first uh, level one trauma center in Phoenix, which is the fifth oh, wow. city in okay. the United States. And we were just inundated with trauma and a mess and, I finally had enough. And I really, I tell people I'm an emergency physician by nature and a psychiatrist by training because I, I didn't become a psychiatrist because I would already want, always wanted to be one. I became a psychiatrist because it seemed to be as far from the ER as humanly possible. <laughs> so I went back and got four more years of training and ended up back in the psychiatry ER. Oh, so yeah. So, okay. It's <laughs> really weird. Yeah. My last job, I worked for five years in the psychiatry. So I, I basically moved like a foot from the medical ER to the psych ER. So it, it, it's, it, my life is the same, pretty much the same. So in, in moving towards that, and that was my next question is how did you fell into this? Cause you were like, Hey, I don't want to do the ER anymore. Um, when you started doing psych um did you fall in love did you like it what was your feeling oh, i love it it's the best thing and I, what's interesting and i you know it's always therapy versus medications okay um i do the medications but I, I i'm just not i don't do therapy per se i don't sit down and talk to people but there are people who do mm-hmm. and i i refer all my patients to a therapist it's just we've kind of split that rather than one person doing both. I do the same thing like your family doctor does. I spend 15, 20 minutes talking to you to get, to get to know you so I can figure out what's in your family, what did your grandmother have, what did she respond to. So going coming to see a psychiatrist now is more like going to see your family doctor. So you, we, we just kind of farmed out therapy to other professionals because frankly, I wasn't very good at it. So you have kind of a team there. That yeah, yeah every, we all do. We all have therapists in our office. There are 
a whole crew of therapists and there are two or three psychiatrists. And so Perfect. everyone I see uh, gets therapy as well if they want it. That, that's, that's exactly the model. It's called that uh, multidisciplinary yeah. model where you're doing the yeah, meds. It's a biopsychosocial model where, the, you know, people often misunderstand psychiatrists. They think, oh, we poo-poo therapy or we don't think it's important or we don't think trauma is important. But we do. It's just I don't deal with it very well. And you, it's like you don't ask medical advice of your therapist. <laughs> I get therapy advice. You know what I mean? So I just refer that stuff to them because I don't, I don't, it's just become specialized, especially with this new trauma and epigenetic stuff. Really, if you've been traumatized, it changes your DNA. And this is something we all had to come to grips with. So that's something you need to kind of get unwound professionally. And especially with DBT training for, you know, borderline personality disorder, that's very specialized stuff which I refer, fortunately we have it, and I refer always to the therapist. Some people don't want it, and that's fine. Some people don't want meds. They come in to see me and say, I don't want to take meds. And I say, okay, have a good day. You know, yeah, that's nice what I do. do. Yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do, and that's just how it's divided. And it's not that one side's right or the other side's wrong. Right. It's just we have, it's like if you go to the dentist, for instance, Correct. and you have a, need a root canal, your dentist will no longer do a root canal. They refer you to an endodontist because it's become a specialty. If you need a tooth pulled, they'll refer you to a specialist now. So when you go to the dentist, it's more like general stuff. But when you get into the specialty stuff, you need to see a specialist. And that's what psychiatrists become. Therapies become a specialty. There are special kinds of therapy that only specially trained therapists can do. And when it comes to medicine, that's my. And we talk about medicine. One of the things I always use in the analogy when they come in and do say that, like for me, um, growing up, I was diagnosed with ADD, you know, the fun yeah. um, processing disorder, whatever it was. And I've, I've never chose to medicate. I've chose to, you know, watch my diet, exercise a lot. But it didn't, what, what I always told people, it says that's my choice because it didn't impair me in my living. Does that make sense? Exactly. Was, no, 100%. Yeah. I don't treat, I tell people, usually people, if you're, if it, like for, even Freud said, mental illness is something that interferes with your love life or your work life. And if your mental symptoms are allowing you to not work or affecting your work or affecting your relationships, you might consider medication. Because a lot of the, it's, it's become now 20 years later and people expect, if you have bipolar disorder, they say, look, my, my mother took lithium, my grandmother took lithium, I think I need lithium. And it's just not a big hassle anymore. It's not a big fight. But there are people who are, in fact, I saw a couple of people last week who come in and they still, you know, they're just, if you want to try therapy first and you're depressed and anxious, that's fine. I have absolutely no problem with that at all. My goal when someone comes to see me is we're, we're in a partnership and a partnership is for us, you and me, to get you well. And well is defined by when you think you're well, not when I think you're well. Whatever you want, I'm here to help you. And if you think therapy is first, we'll do that. If you come in and say you're suicidal, that's a different story. Then there are different rules and different regulations for what happens if you say I'm suicidal and I got a plan. Then I have to. That's a police issue. Yeah. Check them in. 72 yeah. hour hold. That's what that's for. <clears throat> and so one of the things, uh, one of our re, uh, similar colleagues, he, he explained it to me, is he said medications like taking the forest fire down to a bonfire so that it's manageable. And then before you can get that therapy, then having that medication, it kind of levels it out. Do you well, here's, here's how I explain medicines. Yeah. I say it's like uh, insulin for diabetes. Okay. 
Okay, if you have high blood sugar and you're, you, you're sick, I can make you well. It's like if you're hearing voices or you're seriously depressed, I can make you well. Then you still have all the other problems in your life. And that's what therapy is for. Therapy is not going to make bipolar disorder better, but it's going to make your relationships better that you've effed up over the last 20 years because you had bipolar disorder. Yeah. You see what I mean? It's really, it is simply, the medicines really help. And I, when I started my current job now as an outpatient psychiatrist, I was stunned at how many people do very well. Medicaid, psychiatric illness is eminently treatable and they do much better than when I was an internist. I come in and people say, no, I, I, I feel really good, thanks. And then, they, then the, the other problems are dealt with in therapy. Yeah, the therapy is that vehicle and to kind of help people find uh, what's going on because the medicine's- Exactly. Yeah, it's just kind of getting it to um, calm down a little bit so you can address the bigger issue. Well, what I tell people is it's, it's hard to be in therapy if you're sick. There you go. Yep. And what I do is I'll make you unsick. Then the rest up to you. Yep. You and your therapist. That, yeah, you they, you know, like they, they'll coach you through this and they'll get you through this, but I'll make you unsick. Man, you've, you've been through a lot of your career just in all different places. I want to jump over to your book that was a bestseller in Australia. Sure. Um, and in here, it, would, it sold really well bestseller. here. Bestseller. It was an Amazon number one yeah. bestseller. Let, let's talk about it. The, with the gates of, of... Behind the gates of Gomorrah. Thank you. Gomorrah. That sounds like a book we both grew up with. Gomorrah. <laughs> well, I picked it for a reason because... Yeah. Napa State Hospital, where I worked, and all state hospitals, which is what it's about, are behind fences. And if in the Bible, in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah, there everybody knew what happened at Sodom. But Gomorrah, nobody really knew. There was a fence around. If I had to ask you, what their twin cities? What was going on in Gomorrah? Everybody, everybody goes, I have no idea. And that was the analogy to Napa. Everybody knows it's in Napa. It's in the middle of wine country. There's a fence around it. But I said, what goes on in there? And there wasn't a single person who could tell me. So I thought they tried to get the BBC in. And everybody tried to get in to find out what's, what's life like in there. And they wouldn't let them in. So I thought, I'm going to take the information out. So that's what I did. I wrote a book and we toured nationally, internationally. They were not happy. But yeah, I was gonna that say, wasn't the point. The point was out. that... They're, they're violent places. There's a lot of stuff in there that needs to be fixed. The medical care is fabulous. I'll just put that. It's really good. But it's just, anyway, read the book. You'll find out. But they, they didn't like it. Yeah, I remember uh, the first chapter you talk about going there uh, where the police in certain areas in the, in, in the facility, they didn't, they didn't have security. because Oh, they don't was, have security at all. Yeah. The, the units just, aren't locked. Oh. People don't, may not understand is there's still five in California, five state hospitals, which house now the criminally insane. Everyone who, there aren't people, you don't go there like on a 5150. You go there because you've committed a crime and you were found incompetent to stand trial, which means that your attorney went to see you and you were basically nuts or in uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, which means you were mentally ill at the time of the crime. And so those people get sent for treatment to the state hospitals. So you're locked up, like there were 1,200 patients at Napa, all of who, most of whom had committed violent, ugly crimes, all the stuff you read about in the paper. And then you get there and the units aren't locked. Mm -hmm. There's no security on the unit. It's you and a bunch of nurses. Was that scary? Well, of course it was. It was ridiculous. And it was immediate to me it was ridiculous because yeah. everybody, all the nurses kept getting the 
crap beat out of them. And every doctor I worked with went out on disability and there was just nothing to be done about it. And I thought, maybe if I write a book about this, someone, we did NPR specials, we did all sorts of stuff, still got no traction. People, as you know, basically people don't care much about the mentally ill, especially the seriously mentally ill. And they care nothing about people behind those fences. Oh, and so it didn't, it didn't help the workers. Wow. That's crazy. It just made me leave. Yeah. I was going to say you didn't stay long after the book probably. No, but that's what they, that's how they operate. They're, they, we tried, (laughs) believe me, I tried to get everybody in there and we tried to do it. We did NPR nationally. We, I did talks all over the world. Yep, I've seen some of those, and and I really enjoyed the book. It really it put shines some light on what the medical, the first line people that are serving that population, yep. um, even though they're criminally insane, it you're, you guys go in there and treat them like humans still, and try to do your best. Well, the medical care is superb. Yeah, and what I found really interesting is that a lot of people are there for years because it's hard to get out once you get mm-hmm. in, but most of them get better. And so when you walk in, it's not like a bunch of raving lunatics. It's a bunch of people who have committed a terrible crime, but they can't quite get out of the hospital. And for good reason. When I was first there, they they decided, these people seem well, let's release a few of them. So they released four, and within a year, all of them had re-offended and had killed people. And they're just kind of wired weirdly. But um, it's it's just trying to get out. There are people who are criminally insane and that's a bad thing but there are some people there who get better and they have a terrific outpatient program when you're discharged uh and the recidivism rate is i think about one percent if you go through all the steps and get connected with this really good outpatient program that they have it's just unbelievable so the outpatient is the key to that if they if you're discharged you yeah if you go through and you're well and you 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 get hooked up with the the uh, outpatient system it's really good so you you spent how long did you spend there at the exactly five years to the day five years to the day <laughs> and then, then you wrote a book and went and did some things there so you 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 know coming to my next uh thought is this is you know being a purpose driven person you've wrote so many books you've been a, a physician in the er you then went into psychiatry and now you're an outpatient, but you're still writing books. What drives you? Like what makes you do what you do? Well, I also made movies. I've made oh, that's three right. movies. I forgot the movies. And, and the whole purpose of this initial book was to shine some light on the seriously mentally ill, the homeless mentally ill and the incarcerated mentally ill. And when I connected with the, if you ever do see the film, the films, which is Shattered Families, uh, America's, the American mental health system roadmap. And then I did something about a fire. But the point was, those were about the families of the seriously mentally ill. And what people forget is when you, especially in San Francisco and these bigger cities, when you walk around, step over these people, they have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who care about them. They didn't fall out of the sky and the families can't find them. They can't get them treated. They can't, and they really, really suffer. And the movies are t- took five or six of those families and we didn't concentrate on the mentally ill because I realized no one cares about them. If you cared about them, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be laying on the street. But you might care about their parents, who you probably know, but don't know that you know. them. They sense. have lost a son in New York or their sons in Chicago or on the street in Florida. And unless you ask them, they won't tell you. But they're people just like you and me. And I, I, 
have a big following on Facebook and has mainly started off with a lot of the families of seriously mentally ill. I keep trying to get politicians interested. I keep saying, look, dudes, the families vote. And if you'll just take care of them, they might vote for you. And I've talked all over California, Board of Supervisors, legislatures, and it uh, come back to my original statement, no one cares about the seriously mentally ill. And I've proven that over 25 years. And, and it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I had an office, one of my outpatient uh, facilities, and we had a lot of homeless around there. And yeah. I had one guy that would come in and because uh, we'd do bread giveaways, we'd, we'd kind of help him out, uh, the neighborhood. And I still remember him. He'd come in and I says, hey, I'm going to, if you'll watch the building, make sure nobody's breaking in the stuff. I'm going to make sure you have a good bag every day. And, and then I says, I want to sit down and interview you too. I want to know what was going on in your life. So we sat down. I did an interview like this. Yeah. And he was just a normal guy. He was a carpenter by trade. He was a really nice finisher. Uh, but he fell into gambling. He fell into addiction. And I, and I asked him that same question. I says, where's your family from? He says, well, I, I grew up here. I go, why don't you go back to your family? He says, I'm ashamed. I don't think they would, you know, I failed. And, you know, and it, it is putting that humanity into it. It's, yep. and me and him there's also a second group who is seriously ill. And the families try and take them back, but they yes. just behave so bizarrely. The problem is, is it's the, the treatment system, which is the point of the whole books, the whole thing is, is the laws in the United States and in California just don't allow long-term treatment of seriously mentally ill people. It can be done, uh, but it just isn't. Most of these people would get well. I said, if you could give me the people, all the homeless in San Francisco for a year, I'd make 60% of them well and you'd never see them again, ever. Yeah, and that's, that's the biggest piece, piece is, uh... How do we, the system, now you did a documentary on this as well. Yep, I did um, too. So how did those go? Because you, you started. They went, well, the, the film career has been interesting because uh, Shattered Families, the, I, I made the movies myself, uh, but it showed all over the world. We won major film festivals. We won the best picture at the Mexican Oscars, not just best documentary. We won best picture. Best and so it was just crazy. We got all these awards from around the world. But what happened here, we did NPR, we did all sorts of stuff and not much. And then I did what called a movie called Roadmap, which is how to fix the mental health care system. Same thing. We won awards, blah, 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 blah. A huge Las Vegas, like Academy Award thing. And they say the winner is Shattered Families. You go up and you're on TV. And it just, uh, it was great. A lot of people know about it and it raised awareness, but it didn't get to the political level. You just can't break through that. And why is that? Because the political, they don't have the resources. What was it that you- Because mentally ill people don't vote. A, ah. number one, they don't vote. Number two, they don't contribute to your campaign. Number three, if there were mentally ill billionaires, believe me, it would all be fixed. And there has you been. You had to do that <laughs> in order for someone to give you your money to become, to get elected. You'd do it in a minute. Yeah, we and have that's really the problem with the system is to get that going. And there's no, there's no constituency. If you say, look, mm -hmm. I'm going to spend all this money to round these people up and we're going to have to treat them involuntarily and build hospitals and do this stuff. It just, I've talked to the politicians and they go, that's just not going to fly. And I said, well, that's fine, but they're still there. There's 350,000 people laying on the streets of the United States. And uh, you know, there, we've got all sorts of problems, but that is one problem. Yeah. And they're a and, reservoir now of COVID-19. Yep. And so if you want to get it personal, we're not going to treat COVID-19. You walk by a homeless person, what if he coughs on you? You know, someone 
you're not old, but I'm old. I might yeah. die. Well, and I'm they not go into our, to die from that. They still go into the stores. They still go into exactly. The, so you can't quarantine everybody until they've all been all been vaccinated. People would be willing to vaccinate them with homeless mentally against their will, but not give them I am medication to treat their illness so they could get quit being homeless. And that kind of stuff just makes me nuts. So if you're going to so, give them a shot anyway, give them a shot of medicine and a vaccine and, and kill two birds with one stone. So you're saying it, it's interesting you bring that up. It, you know, they'll, they'll go as far as treating the COVID because it's going to affect the polit all the way up to the, yep. the wealthier people. They'll say, hey, we got to treat that so it doesn't get <laughs> up our, in our system. But they won't treat the mental illness, which does still cost the system a lot of money. Oh, it costs millions and millions, but it's a long-term slow cost. There you and go. you can't quite get them to understand that if we could do this, which we, I really found out at Napa State, most people get better and go home once their mental illness is under control. And they say, they'd say when they leave, if I ever stop my medicines, slap me, yes. just make me continue to take them. Because it, as long as they take medicine, and interestingly enough, now there are antipsychotic shots that last a year. A year. Yep. And it's brand new. And so yep. all you got to do is just, Take a shot once a year and you'll be home. You can go home. Most of the people who went off from Nabbit were became taxpayers and not tax users. It's Part of the outpatient thing was employment support. There are people who worked for tech companies. There are people who had night watchman jobs. But the bottom line is they all went home, lived at home, got married, paid taxes instead of using taxes. People just, I, I've ex tried to explain that a hundred times. If you want taxpayers, treat them and they'll be taxpayers. However you want to look at it from a humanitarian so, viewpoint or a financial viewpoint, if you just treat them, everybody wins. So I, th I always thought what it would be like if we did a CPAC team or there is, there is a form of uh, treatment, you can put these mobile units that go out to the homeless yep. and they consist of a psychiatrist, a, a nurse, and a provider like a therapist or a social worker. And they now that the medications do what they do, I don't see why we wouldn't put money into those kind of teams where we find them, give them the shot, you know, diagnose, figure out what's going on. And you really don't have to hospitalize people. No. You just have to make sure they get their medicine. Then eventually, when when they're well, they thought they'll think, you know, I really I don't want to be here on the sidewalk. You know, maybe I would be okay if I had a place to stay. And that's how the, that's how that works. No, you can't. And they go about it wrong. They they build a house. And then give they're it. going to put these people in a hotel room. All right. What do you think they're going to do from this hotel room? Bring everybody else in that hotel they're room. They're just going to wander away. Yeah. And come unless back. Unless you're yeah. going to lock the door. And if you're going to lock the door, lock it in a hospital. There's just no way I can see how this has been thought through. Yeah. The governor's, and I love Governor Newsom. I think he's the best thing going. And if you're going to do 7,000 hotel rooms, we'll do 7,000 hospital rooms because hospitals can actually treat you and keep you in the building. If you get 7,000 hotel rooms with people, homeless people with COVID or not, what do you think the homeless people are going to do the very first night? They're going to they're gonna sleep on they're the They're going to wander away just like they always do. Because they don't have a sense of... Um, well, they don't, they don't belong. They don't have a job. Where are they, where are they going to get food? How's this all going to work? Just putting a homeless person in a hotel room solves nothing. So, but it, but it gets votes, right? I'm taking care of the homeless. Look what well, I'm doing. I hope so. It gets them off the street momentarily, <laughs> but if the hotel's locked, then you're essentially running a hospital without treatment. Yeah. 
So you may as well add a treatment component and just do it right. Do it right. And, and it's going to lessen. I mean, I know it's a slow rippling loss, but in the long run, you're going to get voters. Like you said, you're going to get people coming back. Well, in. You know, it's actually, we've made some progress and I'm not taking credit for it, but I think 1% in there somehow is that if you're at least thinking of taking homeless people and putting them in a small house or a home, that's a start. It's okay. not going to work totally, but it's a start because once they're in the hotel, the hotel manager can come say, you know, most of these people wandered away. Well, maybe we should lock the door. Okay, step three, maybe we should actually treat them as long as the door is locked. And then you're kind of, that's the process I think we're just beginning. You have to get over that mental thing about picking them up off the street or somehow and putting them in a room. They're going to say, I don't want to go. Well, then yeah. what do you do? Or they last for a little bit and fall back into being. Exactly. So you're going to run up against, it just has to be sort of an enclosed space for six months with treatment. And then most of it will go, at least the homeless mentally ill people will go away. There's always drug addicts and buttheads who want to be homeless. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not concerned too much about them. I'm concerned more about the people who are there because they're yeah. sick. The mental health issues and yeah. stuff. Now, what do you think the percentage of the ones homeless uh, have mental health? About uh, 50. 50 percent yeah. yes and then the other is other stuff yeah um you know and well and you know everybody's as you're learning now one paycheck away and now that everybody's kind of been not able to go to work they're kind of saying wait a minute i'll take my chances with the virus but i gotta go to work and yeah. i can understand that i mean we're really in a fix here uh, canada did it right they said i'm giving everybody two thousand dollars and you know, here, stay home, and here's money to stay home because people. No, they're doing two thousand a month. Get right? out, protest. They say, "Look, I can't stay at home. I, I work in a in a. I own a restaurant. What the hell am I supposed to do?" Yeah, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that will lose their businesses, and yep. yeah, this is this is going to be a huge outcome for the economy. It's going to really hurt. Well, seventeen percent unemployment now, and I think that's getting toward the nineteen thirties. It's going level, up when it was about twenty five thirty. And the Great Depression was in the Great Depression. Yeah, they were getting we're, and I I totally understand that, but you can't you got to get the virus first. And we what I find interesting, I talk about this a lot, yeah, is you don't know anybody who's been through this. I have an aunt who my father's older sister left a journal, and she talks about the 1918 pandemic. Oh yeah, and that lasted for three years. And this was in Utah. She was from Ogden. And people on her street died. Kids died. Every, all sorts of people died. And it came back three times because there was no treatment. And guess what? COVID's going to come back three times because there's no treatment. Until there's a vaccine, there ain't nothing going to happen. And we have never been through this. There isn't a single person you can go to and say, remember back in 1918? And they're going to go, nope. World War II, the Depression, my <clears throat> parents, all that. No, they were born after the 1918 thing. This is brand new to us. We will be known, all of us who hear this or see this or know us, on how we reacted during this time. It'll the be the COVID one question everybody will ask. What did you do during the great pandemic? During 2020. Yep. Where yeah. were you in 2020? Yeah. That's the story all of us will have to say. Oh, I was out running around being a fool. Or I, you know, we stayed home and blah, blah, blah. And that's why your little brother's born in 2020. <laughs> Lots of brothers. And <laughs> Lots sisters. of brothers will be born in 2021. <clears throat> yeah. And 
whatever, but this is our time to shine. I, I really yeah. like my job. I, I have an essential job, but I think it's an honor to work during this time. Yes, I don't have I to pain. Uh, you know, medical workers, ER workers, it's, it's an honor to be able to step up. My dad stepped up during World War II in Korea. This is our chance to step up. Yeah. And the essential workers are stepping up and they're dying and they're getting sick to take care of you guys. And, and so, in, in the 1918s, when I was reading some inter or stories in that, there was a lot of essential workers and the medical then wasn't very well put together either. It was very... No, it's just that, that with viruses for which they're... Yeah. The only treatment for viruses is vaccines. That's why vaccines exist. Antibiotics treat bacteria. Inoculation treats virus. Yeah. If you don't have a vaccine, that's why this is a novel coronavirus. This is new. We've never seen it before. We don't have a vaccine. We don't even know how. We're just starting to figure out how to do one. And, and so we're exactly the same as it is in 1918. There's no difference. There's no treatment. There was no treatment then. There's no treatment for Corona. There's so nothing. As a physician, ER physician and psychiatrist, what do you suggest to people? What are some recommendations of panic and anxiety? What, what oh, that's a good question because I deal with it a lot. Yeah. Even as an outpatient, the first question I ask is, how are you dealing with the, the, the I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story first, which mm -hmm. is always good. I, had, I was doing a phone interview and the lady, I said, how are you doing? She says, well, I'm really nervous. And I was getting to know people because I knew. And I said, well, what's the problem? She says, I have agoraphobia. And I said, you've been training for this your whole life. I said, this is perfect. Not only can you, you're not even expected to leave the house. You can't leave the house. You're the perfect person. And she just cracked up. Because it wasn't like, oh, you get sympathy because you can't go outside the house. It's like, I don't want to go out. You're perfect. I wish we all had agoraphobia. Yeah. But everybody says, you know, they're getting stir crazy. They're doing homeschooling. That's why it's like, okay, well, they, they asked my dad to go to Korea for two years and treat medical people. They're asking me to stay home and go to my office. But the anxiety, I think we all need to kind of man up or woman up a little bit. This is what we have to do. And it, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And most people are like that. California, to our credit, I'm so proud of our state. The reason we haven't become New York or Louisiana is because we all got on the ball. And Good. Did what we were supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is what we did in California. And what we'll continue to do, which is we'll probably be locked up another month or two. And then we will do a slow rollout. I'll tell you, just between you and me and sports fans, what's not going to happen is college football, professional football, basketball, because the mayor of L.A. already came out and said there will be no games this year. Yeah, so you're Ram, Charger, Laker, whatever, they're yeah. just not going to play in Los Angeles. And, and everyone in California will say the same thing. And so I really wouldn't count on that because that's just not going to happen. But things will slowly roll out. I can, and I talked to my wife about this. I, I can see if you own a restaurant, you're just going to have to socially distance. You're going to have to let a certain number of people in per shift, like have a six to seven dining seating. You bring seven people in, they sit far apart, then they go home. Then another group comes in. And so you could actually go to a restaurant, and I don't know if they have plastic sheets between the tables yeah. or something. You're going to have to think this through. And different. What's not going to happen is they're going to open the doors and say, you know, the Warriors are playing tonight. <laughs> I'm not going to a sports event. I'm not going to a theater. I'm not going to a restaurant until I'm vaccinated. Yeah. Unless you do it really carefully. And I'm, cause I'm going to bring it. You have little kids. What if you brought that home to your kids? 
Yeah, you never know. I mean, How that's often would you see it? Yeah, because it, it's it's so hard, and we deal with this too in support groups. We have is well, what's the future look like? Because the hope is starting to, you know, it is it is our first pandemic in this century. There, there well, is that's no. The point. Uh, yeah. You don't know. There's no you point of reference. Who do you go to to say? What did you do, Dad, during yeah. your pandemic? My my grandpa's ninety six years old or ninety four. I think he did. He he was during World War II, but he doesn't remember the Spanish. Of course not. He was like two or three, and that's the point. There's no. We're in this. This is new. It's yep. a novel virus, and we're all going through it together. And we will be known. It was like World War II. Uh, they had released World War One to to fall back on, but we're being asked to do something new. And we're being asked to suck it up and we're being asked to look out, not for yourself, but for someone else. That's why you wear a mask. You don't wear a mask to keep you from getting it. Nope. You wear a mask to keep you from giving it to somebody else. Yes, I have them too. And that's <laughs> the point. It doesn't protect you. This is the first time we've ever been asked to do something like Jesus-like. It's like, if you, you want to love your fellow man, stay at home, wear a mask. And wave to your neighbor from six feet. Yeah, and six feet is, that's going to be, you know, you get into, is the vaccine safe? Does it work? Six feet will be the new norm for us, I think, for a long time. And sooner we get used to it, I don't know how they do basketball. I don't know how they do football. I don't really care. I'm a huge football fan, but I don't really care. You can, they'll figure it out. They'll do games on TV or they'll do, what I thought was really clever, what they're doing in England, is that as a, a fundraiser, they're going to have a sports football, uh, soccer game, stadium full, but instead of your seat, you send in a cardboard cutout of your Oh, soccer. there you go. <laughs> which they put on your seat, and on the back it says the charity to which you donated the money from that ticket. Oh, that's cool. And so it's a huge multi-million dollar fundraiser for, for you know, support, food banks, and they can actually play the game, and the crowd is sort of there. Image virtually. That's, what you, that's really thinking outside the box. That's really, really smart. You know, and this is the big thing as a, you know, people have a lot of opinions and it's hard to gain the right one because the news doesn't tell us everything. No. Um, I always tell them, if you have high anxiety, stay off the news. Don't watch it because it's I gonna, do too. I tell people, don't go on the internet. Yeah. Just, um, I, the best I can tell you is pretty much Fauci and the guys who are in charge of the CDC, they say, stay home. Yeah. You know, don't panic. This will be over someday. You know, get stocked up, and it's real, and it's no joke, and it's just, just do the do. You know what's right to do. There isn't a person now that doesn't know they're supposed to stay home, and in California, everybody knows that. Yeah, other places, not maybe not so much because it isn't as bad other places. Try living in New York City. They all get yeah. it. They, you know? It's it's an epidemic over there. So. My question to you being in psychiatry, just to kind of sum it up and, you know, here we are Americans, we're, we're given this kind of lifestyle, we're used to it, we have our freedoms. Psychologically, how hard it is, is for us as Americans to listen and follow directions. I mean, we've, in some states have stepped up, some haven't. What, what's your well, thought? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what's interesting. I live um, in the very northern tip of Sacramento, as far mm -hmm. north as you can get in Lincoln. And we're 20 miles from the largest Air Force Base in the United States, which is Beale Air Force Base, which is the tactical head for all the United States. My town has been empty 
because it's full of military people who are used to being told what to do and know what to do and do it when they're told. So it just all depends. Uh, this is the right thing to do. They know it, so they're doing it. So you've been told this is what you're supposed to do. And I, I don't think we're, we're smart people. We're, we're kind people, we're generous people. I don't want to infect other people with this virus and I don't think you do either. So until there's a vaccine, you just have to get it in your head until there's a vaccine, it will not totally be safe and it will not return to normal and it may never return to normal. Although it did end in 1918, but then the virus in 1918 came back three separate times. And it wasn't until the troops came home from World War One in September that everybody decided I've had enough quarantine and they had these huge parades. And then more people died from the flu than died in the war. Wow. Just from those parades. So if you go out too early, we all start this so, clock again, where all so, your jobs, all the food places close down for good. So this, this is a, so, so just in what you just said, history already told us what happens if yes, we're smart. If you do, there's a way to figure it out. Restaurants can figure out how to get people in maybe. And I think the government will back this. They're, they're going to have a slow rollout, but that's what that means. I think they should open golf courses. Yeah, because you can what, still- What's the big deal? From, You're yeah. far apart anyway. Just don't open the clubhouse. I think they should let surfers surf. Just don't yeah. let people congregate on the beach. And you just sort of can pick and choose one thing at a time and see what happens. Yeah. And if golf courses are open and there's not a big deal, okay, well, try, I don't know, bowling alley or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's how it's going to have to. You're just going to have to figure it out. The virus is there. You can't see it. And it doesn't give a shit what you do for a living or who you no, are. It doesn't matter who you are. A lot of celebrities have got it. doesn't matter how much yeah, money. If they, if they, yeah. If, if KD can't get it, if Kevin Durant gets it, why wouldn't you get it? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't have a, a bias on whoever you are. No, but I think, you know, it's nice, but I think it's our chance to, to don't do it for yourself. Do it for your neighbor. I like that. Well, last thing I want to ask is this is purpose. You know, this is what the show is about is what do you tell people in this time and frustration and all the stuff we talked about, what keeps them from losing their purpose? We have a common belief and it says, you know, in these times of trials, men will, will lose their hearts. So they'll, 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 and what it's saying is it, in that saying, it's saying they're going to lose their purpose from fear. Well, I think it's just the opposite. I think if you are, we're both LDS, we know that, we're from Utah, uh, and the whole purpose is you are taught your whole life, if you're a Christian, that you are supposed to take care of your neighbor. You are supposed to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the first time we've ever come face to face with, oh my God, this is what he was talking about. Yeah. It's not some theoretical thing. It's not paying your tithing. It's not doing all that crap. It's treating your neighbor as yourself. And I think we will step up. I have a very high hope that this, if you take the larger purpose, get out your Bible and read it and see what it says about times of trial. They went through times of trial and says, when you're time, times of trial, hold your family close, love your neighbor, love God. And that will get you through it. I don't think anybody needs to be depressed. This will pass. We will all come out the other end, but we have to, we should come out nobly. We should come out proudly. Like the guys who came home from World War II, they didn't limp home and they weren't whining. My dad was in World War II and he never talked about it until about a week before he died. And I think we need to keep that in mind. No one's interested in your problems. Keep them to yourself. Talk to your therapist, talk to your family, but have hope. If you're a Christian, if you're a Jew, if you're a Muslim, they all deal with this stuff. 
This is the first time we've ever had it face to face, smack us in the face. Oh my God, it's not easy. It's hard to love your neighbor. It's hard to stay home. It's hard to wear a mask. It's hard to do all this stuff, but that's why I'm doing it. That's what that whole thing was about. And I love that. And one of the things I want to ask is you being so, such a driven person, does what keeps you driven? Is it what you read? Is it the people around no, you? Just, I think I'm basically hopeful. Okay. And I think I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I've been given, I, I think talent and, uh, is a gift and I can write and I can make movies. And so I've always been able to figure I can, I can help people do that. But you know, you, I, I don't know what drives people. I really don't. I, I just do it. I write, I've written since I was 28 and I do it every day and people send me money and people say, Hey, that really helped me. And so that helps. But I think basically you just have to, it has to come from inside you. Are you going to be a force for good or a force for not, or just, you know, are you going to be a whiner or are you going to be someone who fixes this? And so sit down and figure, okay, you, your restaurant's closed. Think of something. There are restaurants here that are selling groceries out their front door. They take the groceries in. They can't cook the food, so they sell them. Just think of something. Think outside and I think we will. we'll come out of this. We're not whiners. We may, whiners get on the news. Yep. Like in California, the, there are 45 million people in California in their house, and we get 200 protesters, and they're on the, the lead story on CNN. Well, that's just not the deal. The deal is all the other people are at home doing what they should be doing. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about humanity. And I think that's the message. If you're a Christian Jew, if you're religious, that's the message. This all works out. Good. Well, give, give some sort of advice for them as the listeners. What would you leave with them? It's hopeful. Uh, we're all going to get through this. And it really is. If we, there's a lot of strength in your neighbors and your family, call them, do some phone stuff. Don't get down. You get depressed, call your therapist. Uh, you know, I, that's what I do for a living. But I think, don't think this is going to end in a disaster because it's not. We are good people. We're the best people. This is our generation's time of trial. Every generation has it. And we have not had it. I've lived in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and never had this. And now it's our turn. And we need to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I remember my dad. I remember my grandparents. They stepped up the greatest generation. This is our chance to be the greatest generation. Well, we appreciate it. It's been great to have you on the show. I hope you come back. And uh, I'll come back if you invite me. I will, and it's good. To I had see to you. beg you to invite me this time. <laughs> well, I'm glad you. I, I had to invite everything myself. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you, Doc. And um, if you're listening, you can go to Amazon and find Doc's books. It's Doctor Stephen Seeger, and they and can also can... follow me on Facebook. And how? And what? And they can follow you on Facebook. A, Do you have? I, I just Stephen Seeger. Just follow me as a friend. Send me a friend request. I, I really recommend his writing. His books are great. I, I've been watching the guy in his career and uh, go find his books and you can find them. And if you have any questions, he's always open just on Facebook, reach yep. out to him. All right, you doc. Can personal message me. And yeah, let's do this again, man. Let's do this. Let's Appreciate not wait like 15 years. <laughs> we'll do it more often because we're we, in the we, same We all have different wives and different kids. Since we <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks doc. Appreciate it. All right. It was a pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you for listening to the Purpose Driven Person podcast. Something I said today resonated with you. Head over to my website. I would love to give you a free gift to download, but you can also email me at purposedrivenperson at gmail.com. 
And don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And remember, guys, always continue to push your dreams and never give up. I'll see you next time. Take care.